Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land, taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a God, that there's a savior too. Once our redemption neither fought now knew. Some view our sable race with scornful eye. Their color is a diabolical dye. Remember, Christians, Negroes, black as cane, may be refined and join the angelic train on being brought from Africa to America by Phyllis Wheatley from poems on various subjects, religious and moral. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Composition Podcast, episode eight. As always, it is your host, Dermaine. Thank you for listening to another episode. Um, I hope everybody's reading, of course. And if not reading, just at least, at least trying to excel and progress as best as you can. Um, I'm trying my best to start off the episodes not so morbid. So I hope I get some credit with that. Um, happy Women's History Month again, definitely. A lot of people didn't know that this was a real thing or that this has always been a thing. A lot of people think that this just started either this year or last year. But uh, no, I'll definitely get into the history of Women's Women's History Month a little bit more later. But I definitely want to give you more about our opening poet, Phyllis Wheatley. Um, in black history, this name rings bells, of course. Her being the first black, excuse me, first African-American poet to be published and if you know anything about poetry or african-american history there's a lot of bittersweet that goes with the name phyllis wheatley uh she's beloved and hated by a lot of civil rights activists and writers but she's our first ever published african-american poet we have to have love for the the the, the path she set essentially all african-american modern art this is the mother but uh, a little bit more about her history although her specific date and place of birth aren't officially documented it's believed that phyllis wheatley was born in 1753 in either gambia or senegal she was sold by a chief to a visiting trader which and she was eventually taken to boston massachusetts on a slave ship called the Phyllis, ironically enough. Uh, she hit the colony of Boston, excuse me, she hit the colony of Massachusetts in the city of Boston on July 11th, 1761, where she was then sold to a merchant and tailor by the name of John Wheatley to be a slave for his wife by the name of Susanna Wheatley. John and Susanna Wheatley allowed their daughter, Mary, who at the time was 18, to begin tutoring and mentoring Phyllis. By the age of 12, Phyllis could read Latin and Greek literature in its original form, and she published, excuse me, she wrote her first poem at the age of 14. It is called To the University of Cambridge in New England. After seeing how literate she was, Susanna put together a collection of Phyllis's poems to be published. And as you know, well, as you know now, the rest is history. That's actually what my book of the week is on, if you don't know already, uh, The Trials of Phyllis Wheatley. 
That book comes from Henry Louis Gates Jr. And I thought it was a really interesting book. But before I get into that, uh, let's talk, you know, a little bit of pop culture, of course. Uh, one of the big things floating around that isn't really too heavy in the media for whatever reason, but all through social media, uh, the news has been circulating around after a New York Times article reported that Brittany Griner has been detained in Russia. Now, for those of you that don't know who that is, Brittany Griner is one of the most prolific women basketball players of all time. And she's just an elite basketball player, period. She played college basketball for the Baylor Lady Bears in Texas, and she's the only NCAA player, period, male or female, period, to score 2,000 points and have 500 block shots. So, without saying anything else more, she's one of those. And I honestly don't even want to make it about celebrity or her being an athlete, so she has some type of importance, but she does. And aside from that, she's an American. For her to be detained in Russia, especially during a time like this where we're at a all-out international conflict with Russia and, and someone that is an inspiration for many young athletes, for many young Americans, period, for her to just be stuck and nobody saying a word about it is fucking crazy. So... Prayers for Brittany Griner, for her family, for the Phoenix Mercury, for the WNBA. Sticky situation. Um, definitely want to just, you know, get that out there because, you know, I just remember me growing up, being in high school, watching her ball out. Always watching her ball out. Her and fucking uh, Christy Tolliver. Those two growing up were my favorite basketball players, period. Regardless of sex. So we definitely have to get her out of there. Prayers for Brittany Griner. Um, let's see. What else? Um, the final days of Ptolemy Gray has finally dropped on Apple TV, starring Samuel Jackson. And it's pronounced Ptolemy Gray, not put Ptolemy Gray. Although on the first episode of the show, his nephew, the kid that plays his nephew, calls him Ptolemy on the show. Everyone else calls him Ptolemy. The nephew calls him Ptolemy. So at this point, I think it's a preference thing. But whatever. The show is out on Apple TV. The first two episodes dropped already, I think, like March 4th or March 5th. I only saw the very first episode. I was really excited to see it. Uh, I can't judge it too much simply, I guess, because I know the story. I know where it's going to go. So I have to just see where the acting, where the acting takes it. But... I can say I thought Samuel Jackson killed it the very first episode. Uh, his acting is always going to be fucking above average. But in this show, it's almost like he's getting into a method acting bag. And I really can appreciate it. I've never seen, you know, I've always expected Samuel Jackson to either be extremely funny or extremely serious. And in this role, he kind of juggles the best of both, if you will because he has to stay loyal to the character. So I can appreciate that. For sure, go check that out. Uh, what else? Music lately, uh, there's been a lot of music dropping. Um, I definitely want to highlight Benny the Butcher's latest album, Tanner Talk 4. Ever since I, find out, I found out about Benny the Butcher, 
Conway the Machine, Westside Gun, the whole Griselda movement, I've been an extreme diehard fan. Anybody that knows me that you talk to would tell you. I support the merch. I support the merch. I listen to the music. I'm like diehard. So when I first heard Tana talk three, I just remember saying, yo, who is this guy? He's going to be he's going to be the best in the game. Deadass. Um, and I feel like to see where he's progressed to now, I'm, I'm proud of him. So I definitely want to point that out on this show. Can't can't go without saying um, a few of my favorite shits on there. For sure, Buster Brick Nick. Hardest track on the fucking album. And Back Back with Stove God. Stove God Cooks does not miss on features. But this isn't a promotion. Just go listen to the album if you haven't already. Shout out to Griselda. Keep doing your fucking thing. It's been like three years straight now, and they haven't missed on a single project. Yeah, for sure. Go check that out, the show. Go check out that album. Go check out my album, Double O from Landover with Love. I don't know why I just felt the need to throw that in there. But for sure, go check out those three things. And since we're still on the topic of Women's History Month, before I do get into, you know, the history of Women's History Month, I do want to point out that Jane Champion is nominated for an Academy Award for Director of the Year. She's the only woman to be put in that category. So I for sure wanted to highlight that, give her a quick little shout out. Um, me personally, I've never even seen any of her work. But due to the circumstance, it's Women's History, it's Women's History Month. She's fucking making history as a woman. So without me even knowing who she is or what her work is, shout out to her. I'll go get updated now. But with the history of Women's History Month, let's see. The commemoration began in 1978 in Sonoma, California by Gerda Lerner and members of the National Women's History Alliance. Those would be Molly Murphy McGregor, Mary Ruth's daughter, I hope I'm saying that right, Maria Cuevas, Paula Hammett, and Betty Morgan. Then it began, it received recognition as Women's History Week in 1980, and then progressed to Women's History Month in 1987. After that, in, the, in 87, it spread internationally to the UK and Australia, where it's known to be celebrated how it is today. So no, it didn't begin during the Trump administration or over the few, or over the last few years, like I heard a few people questioning and thinking. Um, it's always been around. Uh, they make it their job to highlight women's history, women's accomplishments, the progression of women, and the support of women. So a beautiful thing there that's always gonna be championed by me for sure. And hopefully as time passes, it'll be championed by others and get to the, the national attention that it needs to be. But aside from that, I guess we can get into our book of the week. This week, it is going to be The Trials of Phyllis Wheatley, written by Henry Louis Gates Jr., who also goes by the name Skip. Skip was born September 16, 1950 in Keyser, West Virginia. He is an author a literary critic, a professor, a historian, a filmmaker, 
and a public intellectual who serves as the Alphonse Fletcher University professor and director of the Hutchins Center for African and African American Research at Harvard University. He is the trustee of the Gilda Lehrman Institute of American History and one of his accomplishments is rediscovering early African-American novels. And for me, I think that's a really, really beautiful thing because I'm a history junkie, period, but especially African-American history. So for somebody to have pretty much their entire career dedicated to preserving that history in its original form I'm always gonna gonna have a certain love for that. Shout out again to Henry Louis Gates Jr. Um, I chose this book for those two reasons. Huge history nerd and it's Women's History Month. So why not start with the first African-American poet to ever be published? I just thought that went hand in hand. Um, uh, a little bit more about the book. It was published April 29th, 2009 by Basic Books, that's the publisher. <laughs> and the book is 144 pages. It's an extremely easy read. I got through it in about three days, so I reread it a few times. And it wasn't at all what I, what I expected, I'll say that. I expected the book to be like extreme detail about every second that took place in the courtroom during the trials. But at the beginning of the book, they, he makes it extremely known. All of the records of the trials have been lost in history. So we just know that it happened, where it happened, when it happened, who was there, and no real account of what actually took place in the courtroom. So it wasn't until my second or third read that I realized that that, you know, that that was there and that I wasn't ever going to get anything telling me specifically what happened. So that was a bummer. Once you get over that, it's a really enjoyable read, really informative read. But let's get into an excerpt. I'll be reading from pages 43 to 46. So if you have the book, you already know what time it is. If you do not, just listen up. I got you. Here we go. Despite sentiments such as these, the fact that Wheatley's short poem has been so widely anthologized in this century has made her something of a pariah in black political and critical circles, especially in the militant 1960s, where critics had a field day mocking her life and her works, most of which they had not read. Until the emergence of Frederick Douglass, Wheatley was commonly used as an icon of black intellectual perfectibility by the abolitionist movement. Even in the late 1840s and 50s, works such as Wilson Armstead's A Tribute for the Negro and Martin R. Delaney's The Condition, Elevation, Immigration, and Destiny of Colored People of the United States Politically Considered were fulsome in their praise of Wheatley and her poetry. We can trace the anti-Wheatley tendency to at least eight, to at least to 1887, when Edward Wilmot Blyden, one of the fathers of black nationalism, wrote about her contemptuously, and the tone was set for the century to come. 
James Weldon Johnson, writing in 1922, complained that one looks in vain for some outburst or even complaint against the bondage of her people, for some agonizing cry about her native land, finding instead a smug, a smug contentment at her escape therefrom. But what really laid her low was ultimately a cultural critique of her work, less what she said than the way she said it. Wallace Thurman, writing in 1928, calls her a third-rate imitation of Alexander Pope. Phyllis in her day was a museum figure who would have caused more of a sensation if some contemporary Barnum had exploited her. Vernon Loggins, in his masterful history of Negro literature, published in 1930, echoes Jefferson when he says that Wheatley's poetry reflects her instinct for hearing the musical words rather than understanding their meaning, an instinct, he concludes, concludes, which is racial. She lacks the capacity to reflect, to think. For Loggins, as Elin Matson put it, puts it, Wheatley is a clever imitator, nothing more. By the mid-60s, criticism of Wheatley rose to a high pitch of disdain. Amiri Baraka, a founder of the Black Arts Movement, wrote in 1962 that Wheatley's pleasant imitations of 18th century English poetry are far and, finally, ludicrous departures from the huge black voices that splintered Southern nights with their hollers, chants, earwoolies, and ballads. For him, of course, these chants represent the authentic spirit of black creativity. Seymour Gross, writing in 1966 in Images of the Negro in American Literature, argued that this Negro poetess so well fits the Uncle Tom syndrome. She is pious, grateful, retiring, and civil. As William Robinson reports, other critics call Wheatley an early Boston Aunt Jemima, a colonial handkerchief head, and utterly irrelevant to the identification and liberation of the black man. She was finally oblivious to the lot of her fellow blacks. Stephen Henderson, writing in The Militant Black Writer, argues that it is no wonder that many black people have rejected Phyllis Wheatley because her work reflects the old self-hatred that one hears in the dozens and in the blues. It is, frankly, he concludes, the nigger component of the black experience. Dudley Randall wrote in the same year that whatever references she made to her African heritage were derogatory, reflecting her status as a favorite house slave and a curiosity. In 1971, Nathan Higgins wrote that Wheatley's voice was that of a feeble Alexander Pope rather than that of an African prince. Addison Gale Jr., a major black aesthetic critic, wrote in The Way of the World that Wheatley was the first black writer to accept the images and symbols of degradation passed down from the South's most intellectual lights and the first to speak from a sensibility finely tuned by close approximation to oppressors. Wheatley, in sum, had surrendered the right to self-definition to others. 
and the assaults continued, the critical arrows arriving in waves. This once most revered figure in black letters would, in the 60s, become the most reviled figure. Angeline Jameson argued in 1974 that Wheatley and her poetry were too white, a sentiment that Ezekiel Malele echoed two years later when he indicted her for having a white mind and said he felt too embarrassed even to mention her in passing in a study of black literature. Similarly, Eleanor Smith maintained that Wheatley was taught by whites to think, thus she had a white mind and white orientations. Here we're given Phyllis Wheatley as Uncle Tom's mother. As the scholar Russell Riesling notes, this trend from the black arts movement of the 60s has unduly informed criticism of Wheatley through the 80s. Angeline Jameson takes a pedagogical and political tack similar to Smith's when she argues that Wheatley's poetry embraces white attitudes and values, and it characterizes Phyllis as a typical Euro-American poetess. She was detached from her people and her poetry could never be used as an expression of black thought. While Jameson grants that Wheatley should not be ignored because of her accommodationist stance, she asserts that teaching Phyllis Wheatley from a black perspective shows that she was simply an 18th century poet who supported, praised, and imitated those who enslaved her and her people. Other critics, other critics echo these sentiments when they suggest that Wheatley leaves the reader of her poems only slightly aware of her being a Negro and a slave, that her poems serve as one measure of how far removed from the reality of her blackness Phyllis had become, and that the Wheatleys had adopted her, but she had adopted their terrific New England conscience. While progressively more modulated, similar sentiments inform Wheatley criticism of the 1980s. Alice Walker, for example, expresses a blend of compassion for and amazement at the sickly little black girl, but nonetheless regards her poetry as stiff struggling, ambivalent and bewildered. In 1986, June Jordan, while sensing the political and ontological ambivalence experienced by Wheatley, and while grasping the explicit resistance to tyranny in a number of Wheatley's poems, still assumes that much of what happens in Wheatley's verse can be attributed to regular kinds of iniquitous nonsense found in white literature, the literature that Phyllis Wheatley assimilated with no choice in the matter. Kenneth Silverman's Cultural History of American Rest Revolution assumes the same trajectory, agreeing that Wheatley's work is a simple paean to white cultural hegemony. Although the critical reception to Wheatley and her poetry by contemporary African-American critics has been largely negative, there has, of course, always been a counter-narrative, but in a distinctly minor key. As Kenneth W. Warren notes in 1892, Anna Julia Cooper praised Wheatley in her collection of essays, A Voice from the South. In the 1920s, her works appeared in anthologies of African-American poetry. W.E.B. Du Bois complimented her in an essay published in 1941 and in 1973, 
Margaret Walker's famous bicentennial celebration of Wheatley's poems at Jackson State College was attended by leading African-American writers and scholars. Nonetheless, the overwhelming tendency in Wheatley criticism has been to upbraid her for not being black enough. All right, that is going to be the end of my excerpt. I hope you definitely enjoyed it and learned a lot from it. But I would say that this book, The Trials of Phyllis Wheatley, speaks in a, a, a broader sense than just that particular court case where she was on trial to see if she was competent and literate. I believe it speaks in a broader sense of her still being on trial, still not being accepted and still being judged right to this day by critics of, her, of not just African-American literature, but just poetry in general. On the one hand, on many different counts, she's seen as an imitator, as an Uncle Tom, as a wannabe. But at the same end, during that specific time, she was seen as this, this intellectual icon of African-Americans. So I think just the duality of it really is where the title comes from. It isn't, it's an ongoing trial. She's still on trial right to this day. I thought that was an interesting realization that I had uh, while reading the book. Um, and then I thought it was really interesting just seeing how many African-American leaders, how many African-American critics, these, these philosophical minds that mean so much to African-American culture, how much they really do dog her out. I did a little bit of research myself, me being the African-American history junkie I am. And yeah, there are a lot, of, a lot of names, especially the ones named in this book alone. They really drag Phyllis Wheatley through the ringer. Now, my perspective on it is somebody has to have that foot in the door. I try to offer, when reading her work, I try to offer as much grace as possible for two reasons. She's a, a, a first century poet, so I don't expect her work to be absolutely amazing as if she's been reading and writing poetry for the majority of her life. And then two, because you can't be too intellectually sound, you can't, or she couldn't express this black, this black love, this black pride in the position she was in. We do still have to remember she's a slave and she, what, what she's doing isn't common. And in any other plantation, any other period of time, if a slave is learning how to read and write, they're killed. It's seen as something that's terrible. So for her to be in this position, being able to do it, I don't think enough love was shown for that fact. And I don't think enough understanding was given to the fact that she couldn't go all the way with black pride and black and black love because for one it wouldn't have been accepted and she probably we probably would have never known who she was to begin with had she done that and then for two like some of the the ending writers say she had to assimilate she's being taken into a culture being absorbed into a culture that isn't her own and just hoping to adjust now, maybe that's shooting her too much bail because she is 
originally from Africa, so she does still have some type of connection to their motherland, to her motherland, and to where she came from. But at the same time, everything she knows, she's been taught. So, you know, it's 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 a very nuanced uh, subject. It's, I feel like one thing I uh, equated to is Jay Z's working working with or for the NFL. I don't really know which one it is, but his work with the NFL, I think this is kind of like that. How you have celebrities and you have African Americans that come out against Jay-Z and, oh, well, what are you doing for us with the NFL? Or all we get is a halftime show. But there aren't any African American owners and there's barely any type of African American leadership in the NFL. So for Jay-Z to be able to take the position of I'm going to get my foot in the door no matter how I can. And we'll see where it goes from there. It's up from there. I think that's the same stance that Phyllis Wheatley probably unconsciously took. But I feel like that's the same stance she had. Uh, There isn't anybody like me. I can't do too much, but I'm here. I'm going to change all of history. Of course, she didn't know that at the time that she was going to change all of history. But of course, she knew that there weren't any other black poets or writers. She's never read any. So she 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 was groundbreaking at the time. And I feel like whenever you're groundbreaking, of course, you can't do too much. Martin Luther King was groundbreaking in his own way. And I feel like whenever you have a message or a purpose that transcends race, as Phyllis Wheatley did, as Martin Luther King did, as Jay-Z is trying to do, his popularity, his fame transcends uh, race, same as MLK. His popularity, I feel like at a certain point after his death, began to transcend race. But his message immediately transcended race, which is why he became as popular as he did. And I feel like those two, those instances also can be applied to Phyllis Wheatley. That's just my take on it. I definitely enjoyed the book. Um, Again, it's more educational about her life and about the lives of the gentlemen that had to determine if she was competent or not, rather than just the court case. So if that's what you're going into or looking for, this isn't the book for that. Um, There are plenty of books about the trial, Um, but again, like I said, many of the documents of what happened aren't necessarily, you know, around still. So anything that I've found was either hearsay or some type of, um, active fiction, but they're out there. Definitely go check it out. Um, I didn't really review the book because it really was just straight educational. I just had my few critiques on it. I did write it out. Um, you can find that. On my website, Dermain.com, CompositionBookClub.com, CompositionPodcast.com. It's all the same. Um, If you read it, let me know what you think about it because I for sure enjoyed it. Definitely want to learn more about Phyllis Wheatley and Mr. Henry Louis Gates Jr. Again, he is one of the best African-American historians out there. Anything, every piece of literature that he writes about African-American history just just takes me in. It's captivating. It makes you want to know more. It makes you feel like you're actually there in that piece of history. So shout out to him for sure. Um, Before I get into a music spotlight, I gave you some history about 
a woman for Women's History Month. So for next week, I'm going to give you history by a woman for Women's History Month. My book of the week is going to be called The Three-Cornered War, The Union, The Confederacy, and Native Peoples in the Fight for the West. It's by Megan Kate Nelson. I'm going to be reading that next week. It, it's a Pulitzer Prize finalist, so clearly it's been talked about, it's been, it's been studied, and I can't wait to get into it with you. For sure, go check out that book, download it, buy it, get ready for next week because we're going to be talking about it for sure. My music spotlight for this week is an extremely talented gentleman that really to my knowledge, can do it all. He's a writer, he's a musician, he's a minister, a motivational speaker, and a, pulse, a personal consultant with a passion for seeing people discover purpose and live their best life. In other words, he's an essential person to have in your life if you want to do better for yourself. My music spotlight for this week is gonna be a guy by the name of Dwayne Cosey. He also goes by the name Cozy, or is it still Cosey? I'm not really sure. It's spelled C-O-Z-E, but E with the straight line above it, like you're speaking uh, fucking Dutch or some shit. The song is called Nowhere. It's on all streaming platforms now. It's a single. Again, it's called Nowhere. That name is spelled Cozy, C-O-Z-E. When I first heard this song, it absolutely blew my mind. Having met him, again, like I said, he's one of those positive energies, but for him to do this, I just didn't see it coming. It really took me by surprise, and I've been listening to it, I want to say, every day since I've, I've, I've discovered it. Really moving song, really captivating song. It takes you there. You'll see exactly what I mean when we play it, when we listen to it. Um, but yeah, multi-talented guy. He has a book that I actually just received a copy of. I can't wait to meet him in person for him to sign it for me. <clears throat> but the book is called Blindfolded. Definitely go check that out. Support all of his art. Um, I'm going to review this sooner or later, but it being women history, Women's History Month, I want to get all of the women some love for sure. So let's for sure get into this song, Nowhere by Dwayne Cosey, a.k.a. Cozy. Hope you all enjoyed. This has been the Composition Podcast, Episode 8. For sure, subscribe. Follow me on all of my social media. Man, all that good shit. And just be prepared to enjoy the song. You all are going to love it. Um, and I will see you next week for sure.
Are you sure you can handle the truth if I tell it to you? Truth might make you say. Are you sure you can deal with the real if I bring it to you? The real might make you mad. Take you there.